young girl sitting at the kitchen table watching her mother cook dinner. And she noticed as she watched her mom, something she hadn't noticed before, that she had little uh, streaks of gray in her hair. And so she asked her mom, she said, Mom, why do you have gray streaks in your hair? Where do those streaks come from? And she said, well, you see, every time you disobey me, every time you do something wrong, a, a run of gray will shoot through my hair. And so the little girl sat and thought for a couple of minutes, and she looked back and she said, is that why all of Grandma's hair is gray? <laughs> well, we're starting a new series today, uh, and we're going to be talking about spiritual maturity. And the title of this series is The Wall. And we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about that for four or five weeks. So I want to ask you to take something out, to take some notes on. Uh, I think you'll... To, to engage this, you'll, you'll need to write a few thoughts down that are important to you uh, to, to understand what we're saying and what it means for you. Um, I really struggled with when to do this message series. To be honest with you, it's been on my mind for about three years. Uh, and and uh, naturally, it feels like the wrong time to me, but uh, man, I really feel such a, a drive, such a inward check of the Holy Spirit to do it now. The, the season we've been through with the series of the Holy Spirit has been so powerful. And what, I, what my prayer for you is, is that you'll see this, in a sense, as the continued, as the same Spirit at work uh, in a different way. And so, let's pick up there. I had a friend that I met in college, um, and I really admired his relationship with God. I mean, he had a you know, he had, a, he had a good relationship with God. I, I still remember the first time I heard him pray. I was walking by a dorm room, and I heard a few guys in a room just praying. They were, they were having a prayer meeting or whatever, and they were in there praying. And what I remember about him praying is he had this infectious laugh. He had this not, not loud, not obnoxious, you know, not attention-getting, but just this, when he would pray, he had this infectious laugh that he would pray sometimes. It wasn't, it wasn't loud. It was calm and relaxed and it was peaceful. It sounded to me like, like as he was praying that he just trusted God. Like there's no need to be afraid. There's no need to be uh, anxious. There's no need to be filled with worry. It was a laugh that uh, sounded to me like it was filled with joy. That he just had, he had joy. Uh, he trusted God and, and there wasn't anything to be afraid of. There was just such a liberty for him as he prayed. I still remember that, that sound. And uh, he, this guy excelled in school he did really well through college. In fact, he did so well, he became the student uh, body president of the college where we were at at the time. Uh, but as I got to know him a little better, there was a little more to him than just that. His dad had left his family when he was young, and uh, he and his brother were raised by his mom. His mom was a church secretary, and she just you know, did the best she could for her two boys. She scraped, scraped together the best she could to help him get to college. Uh, he was going to train to be a pastor, and that's how I met him. And as the years went by, something happened to his faith that shocked me. He loved God as much as anybody I knew, and he wanted to live a right life, but he began to lose his joy. He began to, he began to I was trying to figure out how I would say this, what he began to question. He began to question everything about his faith. I mean, it was a real crisis for him. And his journey continued on for years until he hit what I call the wall, until he hit the wall. Was he, was he still a Christian? Yes. Was he, was he, did he still believe in God? Yes. But he was at a very different place than he was the first time that I met him. 
And I think that begs the question, sort of the unspoken question that most of us have at some point in our life, whether we're conscious of it or not, is kind of the question of can't, can't you get so on the right track uh, that something like that can never happen to you? I mean, can't you get can't your faith become so strong or can't you become mature enough or can't you become faithful enough or can't you somehow get so much a hold of God that you can avoid anything like that from ever happening to you? And the answer I want to give you this morning uh, is revealed in the wall, but the answer I want to give you is no. In fact, the greater your pursuit of God, the more inevitable your chances are that you're going to hit the wall. Hitting the wall becomes... Listen to this. This will be a key insight for understanding the whole series. Hitting the wall becomes the only way that God can surface our deeper doubts, our deeper fears, our greater fears, and our more profound brokenness. So what is the wall? It's this big, giant, tall, daunting, immovable object that comes right in the middle of, our, of the road we're on in our spiritual journey. It is tall, it is wide, it blocks the road, it's daunting, it doesn't talk, it, it doesn't respond, it just stands there and stares at us, and it seems like nothing we can do will move it. It's an obstacle, we don't know how it got there, we don't know why it's there, we just know we hit it. So what is the wall, if you're, if you're writing this down? It's when the faith methods we've used in the past no longer work. In other words, the path that I connected to God on early in my faith, those paths seem to be closed now. They don't seem to work for me anymore. The wall is where our will meets God's will face to face. That's what Isaiah hit in Isaiah 6. Our will meets God's will face to face. So what happens when a person who serves God, who follows Him, who believes in Him, hits the wall and says, where's God? Or, or who is God? Or is God even real? I'm just telling you, that is a gigantic crisis. When your faith is challenged that way, it's a gigantic crisis. It's a big deal. And that wall is something we run into on our spiritual journey. Now, we're going to spend the whole series on the wall. But to help us understand what it is and how we get there, we're going to back up this morning and we're going to talk about the road to the wall. We're going to talk about the stages of faith as we get to the wall. You can go ahead and, and uh, put the graphic up. Our spiritual journey has predict predictable stages or patterns to it. Now, there's a lot of different models on how a person grows in faith and all of that, and the reason there's a lot of different models for it, one, is because nobody totally understands it. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not completely definable. It is somewhat individualized between God and you. And there is no program. There is no curriculum. There is no plan that can exactly talk about or map out. So we don't totally understand it. The other one is we're trying to describe something that's indescribable. This is wrapped up in the mystery of God. It's wrapped up in the person of God. It is, it is sacred and it is holy and it is the work of God in your life. And there's no way to adequately understand it or explain it. So why are we talking about this? Here's why we're talking about it. The American church, in my opinion, is stuck in one of the early stages of spiritual maturity. It's stuck. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. The other reason we're talking about it is because our goal as a church is not just to try to figure out how many people we can get in the room. Our goal as a church is to figure out how many people can we bring into a deep relationship with God. 
That's the deal. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole thing. So that's, that's why we're talking about it this morning. Now, what you need to know, there's uh, one, two, three, four, there's these six stages. What you need to know about these stages is this. No stage is wrong. Every stage is right, and every stage is intended to be moved through. So no stage is wrong, and no stage is better than any other. All are right, and all are necessary. Okay? So let's look at the stages uh, this morning. If you're taking notes, here's the first one. It's discovering God. Do you remember how you felt when you first got saved? That's what this stage is. It's when you realize that, that you're lost, that you're empty, that you don't have any way to God. You don't have any way to reconcile your own guilt, the things that you've done wrong. You have no way. And we sang the song this morning. It's resurrection power. You learn that God loves you and he died for you and he's given you power to become one of his children. That's, it's forgiveness. That's the, first, that's the first stage. So you realize there's a God there who loves you. You accept him. You have a new birth experience. You become a Christian. You become filled with peace and joy and love. God feels close to you all the time. You open the Bible and read it, and it just jumps off the page and comes alive. A prayer seems easy to you. And at this stage, what happens is, is Satan targets our mind. We're filled with excitement in our new faith. So the enemy tries to discourage us with shame and guilt, frustration, apathy, and fear. Do you remember when you first got saved and it seemed like everything was going great and then you did something wrong? I mean, you did something and you went, I didn't know that I could still do something that bad as a Christian. I thought when I got saved, all that was taken away and I would never do anything that bad again. Do anybody remember that? How did you feel? Guilty. And, and that's what the enemy's trying to do. He's trying to undermine God's work in your life and say, well, if you were really saved, you wouldn't have done that. Right? He's trying to sow down. He's attacking the mind, and he's sowing those things in. Now, when we move past that, we get into stage two, which is the life of discipleship. This is the stage. Now, watch this. Remember, I said in the first stage, we feel God's near all the time. As we grow on this journey then those emotions of the new life in Christ start to wear off. And rather than God constantly affirming us with the feeling of closeness to him, we sometimes feel close to him, we sometimes don't. You ever go through that? We sometimes feel God's there. We sometimes go, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know, I don't know where he's at or what happened. And God is starting to wean us off those early emotions and stretch our faith to believe he's there even when we don't feel him. All right, you've experienced this, most of us, yes? This is the stage where we become aware that there is a devil. I remember when I got saved, I didn't think about, I didn't get saved because I thought there was a devil. I didn't come to faith because I thought he was after me. I just got this huge salvation experience where I came to God. It's the greatest thing that I've ever known. And I can remember as I was walking with God, this realization that there's this dark, evil, nasty force that really, hate, it hurt my feelings. He hates me. Why does he hate me so bad? What did I ever do to him? And it's this cosmic battle. I didn't even know it was out there. And we begin to realize he hates us and he's battling us. And he is surprisingly deceitful. He is surprisingly evil and deceitful. So at this level, the enemy wants to push us to one of two things. Either he says to us, now if you're really going to get close to God... True discipleship will make you miserable, and it'll cost you every pleasure in life. In other words, that's where the whole feeling comes from. If you really get close to God, he'll send you to Africa as a missionary. You'll live in a tent with spiders and monkeys. Right? That's where that feeling comes from. 
He's trying to get you to believe, don't go all in. If you go all in, he will, he will ruin you. His greatest joy is to make you miserable. And that's what the enemy tells us. And so we wonder, have you ever had this question? This series is about questions. We wonder, do I really have what it takes to go on? The enemy loves that thought, and he keeps feeding it. No, you don't. No, you don't. You'll never be like... Then he starts to bring all these, you know pictures to your mind about these really strong Christians that you know, and he says, can you be him? Can you be her? Could you be like them? You'll never be like them. And he keeps sowing, or, or he tricks us into believing that we're already mature, and we're right. And he wants us to focus on the outside and measure ourselves by outside standards. In other words, I know I'm on the right track because I'm in the right denomination. I know I'm on the right track because my doctrine's right. Or I know I'm on the right track because my hero, this person that I've... You know, when, when we're not in faith, our heroes are not Christians. But when we come to the Christian faith, early on we adopt Christian heroes. And then we begin to identify with them, maybe a charismatic leader, a good teacher, a good pastor, a good whatever. And we say, I know that I'm on the right track because I'm following her or I'm following him. And we, and we identify with it that way. You know, Paul the Apostle dealt with this. Do you remember when he was trying to tell the church, some say that I follow uh, Apollo, some say that I follow Paul. Remember that? And he's saying, it like don't matter. But they were in stage two. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I had become a Christian, and this girl was in my class, and I don't know how we got on this discussion. I'm sure, I'm sure I initiated it somehow. And, and she said to me, she was Catholic, and she said to me, she said, hey, she said, we got the Pope. Who you got? And I can remember thinking, I don't know. <laughs> we, we got, well, it was Jimmy Swaggered, but that didn't really, I don't, we got nobody. I don't really know who we got. If I'd have been on my game, I'd have said Jesus. But I, you know, I, I, I wasn't ready for that question. I thought, I don't know who we got. What does that tell you? I am on the right track because I'm following this person or this denomination or this doctrine or whatever else, and the enemy's trying to keep us uh, distracted by the external things. But see, God is moving us. And since we're still focused on the externals, we think when we don't feel God as much as we did before, then something on the outside is wrong. Now watch, this is very tricky. So when we think, I don't feel God the way I felt at stage one. I don't feel God the way I felt when I got saved. So what do I do? I, I never look inside for the answer. I look outside. So I say, I know what. That Christian leader I was following, that's not working anymore. I need to follow somebody else. Or we, or we say, I need to change churches. There's something wrong with this church. I need to go find another church. Or we say, the translation of the Bible that I'm reading, it's not the right one. I need to find a different one. So what, what, we, what we try to find is a is a, a new environment because what we're wrongly assuming is that what's wrong with the world is everything around us and everything inside of us is okay. All the while, we ignore the Spirit's tug to follow Him deeper because He's calling us inward and we're still looking outward. I guarantee you, i give you this example and you'll say, yes, I've seen that. You take a person who gets married they get married, they're married so long, they get to a certain point in their marriage and they get divorced. Then they get married again and they get married so long and they go through a certain thing and then they get divorced. Then they get married again and they go through a certain thing and they get to about the same point and they get divorced again. What is happening? I'll tell you what's happening. They get to the point of development and growth in their marriage relationship 
And then they hit the same wall again and again and again. And rather than holding on until they're pulled through that tension into maturity, they keep aborting the process and starting over. Right? I mean, we've seen this. That happens in our faith because our faith is not based on an organization or a religion. It's based on a relationship with God. And we get to that point, we get stuck in our relationship with God, and just like the guy who goes and gets divorced, we get divorced and then change environments. And we say, that's what the real problem is. And, and, and that's what we, we look for new external experiences. Look, you take a person who changes churches a lot. That's what's happening. Every few years, they go find another church. Here, here's the way Pentecostals say it. Pentecostals say, I don't feel the Spirit here anymore. Rather than looking inside and saying, is there something going on in here? They say, I don't feel the Spirit here anymore. Let me go get in a different environment. What a Baptist will say is, the Word of God's not preached here like it used to be. What, what any Christian will tell you is, I'm not being fed here anymore. And by and large, I think the American church is stuck because we as Americans have learned that life is about customer satisfaction. It's not about maturity. And it's about maturity. So, look, I mean, we usually don't say this out loud, but I'll just say it out loud. People who change churches a lot are immature. And we don't say that because we don't want to... Because you say that, then they get offended. They get offended because they're immature. Right? Look, I'm not saying it's wrong to ever change. I changed churches. I've only been here four years. Most of you have been here longer than I have. Okay, cool. No problem with it. I'm just saying, if that's the pattern, I guarantee you the people in this church that are most mature are the ones who've been here the longest. I'm not saying everybody who's been here the longest is mature. It's not the same thing. You, you can ride the pew till it rots under you and do nothing. What I am saying is the people who are most mature have probably been here the longest because they stopped the tendency to keep changing their environment every time something they felt wasn't right, and they let the Holy Spirit pull them into the journey from the outside to the inside. And what they said is, what's really wrong with this world is what's in here. And when God fixes that, then something good's going to happen. Well, okay, we'll move on. Stage three. Oh, uh, let me tell you this. I looked up, because I was just curious about this. The Christian um, culture in America, what stage of faith are most of the Christian things targeted to? Almost everything that you find on Christian radio, Christian books, almost all of it is targeted to people who just got saved or, or in the life of the, in the first two. Uh, 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 Christian radio, Christian events that you go to, most of it's targeted right there. I went to a Christian magazine this weekend, and I looked at what are the, some of the latest selling uh, titles of books. Now listen to these titles and tell me where you think they're targeted. Now remember, stage one isn't wrong. Thank God you got saved. <laughs> stage two isn't wrong. Thank God we're growing. No stage is wrong. All stages are right. But they have to be moved through. So look at, look at where the Christian uh, culture targets. Listen to, to these um, titles. Uh, what on earth am I here for? Fearless. Want to walk on water? You got to get out of the boat. Your best life now. You'll get through this. Trusting God. Breakout. Unmerited favor. Battlefield of the mind. God, remember why I told you how the enemy targets the mind? 
God is not mad at you. 199 promises of God. Where's that targeted? It's targeted to believers in stage one and two. So all I'm saying is somewhere or another, we've got to have a conversation that there are more places to go in God. That's all. Not that any of these are wrong. Everybody comes. Nobody gets to skip them. Everybody's got to come through. All right, stage three, the productive life. This is the stage where our growth has taken on some layers of depth now. We've outgrown the mood swings that come with having days where we feel God and days where we don't feel God. We are focused, we are obedient, we're productive. In stage three, it feels like we're firing on all eight cylinders. In this stage, we're so invigorated by what we are accomplishing for God that we find spiritual affirmation in our task. This feels like finally I've arrived at the place that I've been looking for my whole Christian life. I've finally arrived. I've finally gotten there. By the way, when I first heard about this stage, I was a senior pastor of a local church, and I thought that was the highest stage. I thought that was the highest stage as you could get, right? I mean, think about it. it. Isn't the point of our faith to accomplish as much for God as we can? That's what that's what we, that's the conclusion we come to, especially if you're a pastor, you do. Isn't the point of your faith to accomplish as much as you can, make as big an impact as you can make? Isn't that the point of the Christian faith? That's a stage three idea. Now, it's easy to become blinded to our deep inner needs when our external lives spiritually are going so well. In other words, when we're productive spiritually on the outside, it's very easy to become blind to what's on the inside. I think most the American church is stuck in stage two. I think most church leaders and pastors are stuck in stage three. I think this is where we get stuck. In this stage, here's what the enemy does. His plan is to trick us to use the intoxicating feelings of accomplishment to become an idol and to replace our relationship with God. So we become so busy working for God, we neglect our relationship with God. Because there's no shortage of thing, good things to do. I mean, as long as you got time, as long as you got day, there are people to touch, there are people to reach out to, things are happening, accomplishments are coming. This is the stage where good becomes the enemy of the best. Where doing for God becomes the enemy of being for God. Now, that brings us uh, to stage four. And here's the deal. Some people put the wall over there. Some people put the productive life, the journey inward. Some people put it there. Some people put it between. None of us like know what we're talking about, so it really doesn't matter. Put it wherever you want. Where do you like it? Pin the tail on the thing. The point is, somewhere in your journey of faith, as the Holy Spirit leads you into maturity, as he draw. By the way, that's what the Holy Spirit's job was in Jesus' life. He, he, he moved him into the desert. He moved him into maturity. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. That was a work of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' life. And, and the Holy Spirit's still doing the same thing. He's growing the body of Christ into maturity individually and corporately. And so the, this is a work of the Spirit. As he's drawing you in, as he's drawing you into maturity, somewhere or another it's going to dawn on you that this isn't about the outside, this is about the inside. So I could have everything going right on the outside and still have issues on the inside that need to be dealt with. So this is where when I go to, some people say you hit the wall and start the journey inward. Some people say you start the journey inward and that's how you hit the wall. I don't know. I, I could care less. Things don't look, but here's what happens. Things don't look as simple as they once did. 
A tragedy, a crisis, an event has come into our life and caused us to question what we believe and who God really is. And we finally stopped looking on the out and started looking in, and, and, and that begins to change us. I, I, let me tell you, my wife and I lived in Florida for six years. I will summarize in two sentences or three our entire experience for six years in Florida. We pulled up in the town. We unloaded everything we owned. We had six intoxicating years of pure joy and ministry accomplishment. Everything we touched turned to gold. We packed our stuff and we moved. That was it. Six years of high sailing ministry accomplishment and success and all of that. And then we moved to Mississippi. And a pastoral transition and a massive church transition and a major natural disaster and our son who contracted type 1 diabetes later and it felt like we were dying. It felt like nothing was working and there were days that I would say, God, where are you? And why don't you fix this? And the way that I dealt with those things before, I'm dealing with them the same way, but you're not doing anything. They're not going away. They're not resolving. They're not, they're not being fixed. And uh, in this time period, I was, uh, wait, 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 I'm sorry, let me, uh, what I was about to say is idiotic, and, and you'll find out what I, I was going to say at this time period, I was faithful to my wife. I've always been faithful to my wife. I want you to know that. <laughs> the, this wasn't a season. It's not a seasonal thing for us. We, we, we practice faithfulness all the time. Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say is, uh, there wasn't any grotesque sin in our life that would bring these things. So uh, we were faithful to one another. Uh, our, our family was not being neglected. I wasn't trading time in with my kids to be with the church and all that. Uh, I was tithing, doing my devotions, living sacrificially. I had no hidden sin in my life. It wasn't perfect, flawed, human, all of that, but none of those other things. And it seemed like that life would moan by by the inch. And there were days that it felt like that God called us to kill us. I was numb, and I was empty, and I was lonely, and I was confused. I couldn't get God to do anything about any of it. And I can remember thinking, I can remember the very first time I ever considered quitting ministry. I said, maybe, maybe God calls some people for a season, and, and that's our season, and that's it. We had our time there, we've had our time there. And we haven't lived in sin, and we obeyed God best we knew how, and we did what we were supposed to do, and that's it. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's, maybe that's how he works in some people's life, and maybe our time's just over. And, and people would try to help us, uh, but most of their answers sounded like trite cliches, sort of rung like a foreign language in our ear. I remember having a pastor friend tell me one time, I had a, I had a problem like that in our church once, and I went down the, the, a chair in the sanctuary, and I laid my hands on it and prayed for it, and in a week it was resolved. And I thought, oh, great. So I went over to the sanctuary. I thought, I didn't know that's what you're supposed to do. I never, I'm glad you told me that. I feel free now. I go to the sanctuary. I lay my hands on the chair prayed, and nothing happened. But not just in a week, in a year. In two years, I thought. And then you start to think, what's wrong with my faith? Why, why aren't these things being resolved? Where's God? You ever have one of the, uh, 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 a baby Christian you know, come up to you? And you see all the, it's like everything happens in their life easy. Poof, presto, wow. It's like those little uh, word bubbles that pop over Batman. Zowie, zing, wow, woo. You know, 
They tell you, I was at the Galleria the other day, and there was no parking spot within miles. It was December 24th, you know, Christmas Eve, and I needed, and I just said, oh, Jesus, you know I'm short on time, and Lord, I need a parking spot. And somebody pulled out right in the front spot by the handicap, and I zoomed right in. That's all you got to do is believe. You ever have that? And you're there circling the parking lot for hours going, where's God in the parking lot of the Galleria? Jesus, don't you love me? Let some of these heathen park out there and walk. They need the exercise. Let me park up by the door of J.C. Penney. Right? There you are sweating and laboring your hide off, and you can't get a breakthrough for nothing. And that makes you think, what's wrong with my faith? Now listen very carefully to me. Sometimes the struggles you face are not because something's wrong with your faith, but because something's right with it. I had nowhere else to look, but God had sort of hemmed me in, hemmed me in up against the wall. And I was stuck, and I didn't know how to deal with it, and I didn't have anywhere else to turn. And I had to confront some realities inside that I didn't like. And by the way, I realized at that moment why we don't stay at the wall. Because there's only one place to look. Inside. Like I said, I was tithing, I was praying, I was doing my devotions, I was fasting, all the external things were the way that they should be. But there was no traction. So I had to confront some internal realities that I had legalistic ways in my life. That I look, when I looked inside, I saw there was some Pharisee inside me. I saw that I was too independent of God. I found out that sometimes I love people's approval more than I love them. And my life was shallow and mostly lived on the outside, and that I had traded my time with God for ministry effectiveness. In other words, I would say, I've got to get, the way to be a good pastor is to spend time with God, so I'll spend time with God, so I'll be a good pastor, and it had nothing to do with getting to know Him. It had to do with being what I thought He wanted me to be. And those are the kind of things that you learn at the wall. And if you don't deal with those walls in your life, we spend our entire life circulating and moving from one stage to another to another. We hit the wall, it gets too uncomfortable, so we go back. We hit the wall, it gets too uncomfortable, so we go back. We hit the wall, it gets too uncomfortable, so we go back. And there are people that spend their entire lives on earth at the first, second, or third stage and just rotate, stuck. I think the American church is stuck somewhere in two. Stuck right there in the external, jumping around, looking for external answers. Now, in Scripture, we see a lot of examples of the wall. Uh, remember Elijah? Elijah's been used by God to supernaturally uh, trump 450 false prophets. And then the queen says, you did that, I'm going to kill you. And then he runs for his life out and finds a tree on the edge of the city, and he hides under it, and he's sitting there going, God, nobody serves, me but, uh, serves you but me. I'm the only one left. Why me, God? And do you remember Hannah? Remember in the Old Testament, Hannah prayed year in and year out, the Bible said. She prayed so intensely that she would cry and her mouth would move, but no sound would come out. She was at the wall. Joseph had, would have been killed by his brothers had one of them not said, well, rather than kill him, let's throw him in this hole and sell him into slavery. And I'm sure there were times he wished they would have killed him. And King David had an affair 
with, with this uh, Bathsheba, and instead of being honest about it, he sends her husband to the front of the battle so that he would be murdered and it wouldn't look like it was David's fault. And then from that uh, adulterous union, a child is born, and then the baby gets sick, and David lays out on a pile of dirt for eight days asking God, or whatever, or however days it was, asking God, when are you going to save this baby? And the baby dies. David's hit the wall. Abraham, after living his entire life with the promise that God's going to give them children, at 90 years old, God gives them a a child, and when that child turns 12, God says, kill him. I'm just telling you, that's a faith crisis. That's a where is God moment. And then the poster child, Job. When Job's children have been killed and his property destroyed, his friends have rebuked him for the sin in his life. His body's been broken out with sores from head to toe. He's sitting in a pile of ashes with shattered pottery pieces scraping the sores on his body. And his very own wife looks at him and says, Job, curse God and die. He hates you. He's turned his back on you. Curse him and die. I'm telling you, that's the wall. You've ran into it. Jesus ran into it. Remember in Gethsemane when he said, Father, please take this cup away from me. I don't want to do this. What did I say the wall was? It's where your will meets God's will. But not my will. Here's be done. That's what the wall is. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. When we hit the wall, our tendency is to pull back because it is painful. And we want to return back to days when we were on fire or we felt God all the time. We want to go back to those days when things were easier and clearer and simpler and made more sense. But I'm saying to you, if we don't, I'm saying the same Spirit that led us through the last five Sundays of the Holy Spirit series will lead us. Psalm 23 says, He leads us in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He will, we haven't even, we didn't even got to the other. We won't even deal with those. The rest of the series, we're just going to talk about the wall. You could be in the wall for months. You could be in the wall for years. It is a mysterious work of the Spirit. And He leads us. He leads us for our own good and for His glory. I, 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 I was concerned when I shared these thoughts. I don't want you to ever think that I'm saying or get the impression that God is someone who like the only way he can grow you up is hurt you like oh man I better not follow God he's going to make me have a car wreck so I can learn something don't that's also a, a temptation of the enemy to believe that God's bad or takes pleasure in our pain and nothing could be for you are an adopted son you are an adopted daughter of God and he loves you you're the apple of his eye he's never had an evil thought about you he adores you and his your pain causes him pain he takes no joy in any of our pain but but he wants to bring us to a place of victorious maturity in him that our faith is not shaken by the current uh, uh, issues of the day. Our faith is not shaken or arrested by emotional swings or by circumstances or events, but they are placed squarely in Him. Did you ever find James chapter 1? Let's read it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, 
Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I want to read that same passage from the message. Because that language is so uh, powerful there. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Boy, isn't that powerful? Would you stand with me? As we wrap up this morning, I want to ask our prayer team to come. And as we wrap up this morning, 